George, Peterborough's Art and Culture Podcast, Episode 30. You can find us in almost any podcast site. Uh, admittedly, I've had try- trouble trying to keep up with Reddit, but I'm going to certainly try and provide this episode and others on that. And subscribe, please, and enjoy. That's all I ask. Well, I face a dilemma right now that I'm going to have to somehow decide upon. I think I may even decide upon in this mini-discussion I'm having with you, my audience. So when I say it's an art and culture podcast, if you look at the culture element, that in part means, quote, and this is from Oxford Dictionary, ideas, customs, and social behaviors of a particular people or society. Well, at least when you think of customs or behavior... It sort of fits somewhat, somewhat, into a very dark matter matter we face, this drug toxicity crisis that we have faced in Peterborough for many years now, but is also constantly involved in change, which I don't think many people realize, especially those in power, those people who have not been directly affected anyway. Perhaps this is... This, what I'm about to do, is meant for a future side project of mine, but I think for the moment I'm just going to keep it on Corner of Hunter and George. This is going to be part one of kind of a drawn-out three-part interview series with three different individuals who have or are currently trying to solve our drug toxicity crisis despite lack of government support. Nancy Henderson is currently a doctorate student, PhD student, at University of Victoria in nursing. But before that, she was, among other things, a program manager and researcher at Peterborough's 360-degree nurse practitioner program. <clears throat> at 360, through federal uh, funding, was able to obtain safe supply of drugs for 50 people in Peterborough instead of them getting the toxic supply that comes off the streets. In this following interview, I I really thank Nancy a lot for this, not just for being informative, but her sharing with me her story, and in general talking about a topic that is incredibly painful for, for many in this city, this country, and the world beyond, and plus sharing her own story, which is the part of the interview definitely I enjoyed the most. So here's my interview with Nancy Henderson as part of Drug Toxicity in Peterborough, an Understanding, Part 1. Okay. I'm a little bit nervous, I have to admit. I'm a little bit Okay, well, you're a prominent name that came up when I was... um, When I was uh, looking looking into this, and it's more just uh, like... Someone who's kind of, um, I wouldn't say looking for answers, but looking to have a full under, 
not a full, but a, like as much of an understanding of it as I can. Yeah, for um, sure. And someone who, again, comes from a perspective of not having any uh, um, usage of um, the sort of um, drugs we're talking about in the past or things like that or homelessness, of course, but uh, still um, – in some ways, as various things I've been involved with, I've kind of been, I've kind of seen a lot of it up front in the past year. So, yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a prominent problem. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're speaking now from, um, Victoria. So, um, so what, what is it you've been doing out in Victoria? Is am I correct in saying you're doing your doctoral studies there? Sort of. Absolutely. Yeah. I just moved out here at the end of August to start my PhD. Okay. And uh, so pretty recent. Yeah. Well, I admit, I don't think I've been out there for maybe, I think probably about a decade, but uh, anyway, when I've been there, so my past, when I've been there several times, I think it's one of my more favorite cities in Canada, just for aesthetic quality. I don't know if that's still the case, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. Absolutely. Yeah. Everywhere you go is is something more beautiful. So it's, it's pretty spectacular. I'm pretty lucky to be here. Yeah. I, I just, I love that view when you're walking out um, and looking out across to the mountains at Olympia, Washington kind of thing. So that's quite, um, but um, I was going to start just uh, so through safe supply, safer supply and other work you've done in the past, I believe in Ottawa and Toronto, um, like most of the clientele or people you've worked with, um, do you have a certain percentage or um, uh, of, of those people you've dealt with who've had to, who've been exposed to toxic drugs in the past? So everybody who is on safer supply programs have yeah. been, um, that's that right now that is the, the main qualifying p- part of it is that, you um, are reliant on the street supply, which is now fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and probably through your time, that's probably changed a lot because um, I don't know. I'm still kind of amazed that a lot of people um, refer to it as an opioid epidemic kind of thing. Cause I don't really think that's a pure accuracy of that. I mean, we certainly aren't in the day and age anymore of like being overprescribed by doctors and things like that. No, exactly. And, and language is important, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and so there is um, a push to try to change that um, from calling it an overdose crisis or a, or an opioid crisis to it being a drug poisoning crisis, because really and truly that's what's happening. Overdose implies that you overdosed so that you um, took too much of that drug. But um, the reality is, is people aren't, and it's not an intentional um, act. And it, the problem is, is that there's no, guarantee of what the quality or or quantity of fentanyl that is in that batch so it's really hard to know what dose is going to be okay for you so really and truly people are being poisoned by this drug supply Mm -hmm. um and do you this is just one thing i've heard discussed before and i don't think anyone has a real answer but do you have any sort of theory or kind of a professional understanding among colleagues you've worked with of uh, where the toxicity comes from, because you would think, I guess, from a pure 
not trying to sound cold, but like from a pure capitalist point of view, I can't, I don't know if I can see it being a malicious, like an intentional malicious act, because why would you want to be killing off your clientele sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. So I think looking at it in a similar way to how prohibition has been, like prohibition is the problem behind all of this. And when, um, when alcohol wasn't, was prohibited, um, that they, people kept finding a, um, more potent form of that. Uh, of alcohol. So then hooch became a thing. And like, because you want more bang for your buck, right? You want, you want more, uh, a stronger, but less, qu- uh, less quantity. So, um, I think you can look at this in somewhat of a similar way that, um, fentanyl is, is, is more bang for your buck, right? It, it's stronger. So, um, it's stronger than heroin. It's easier to get into the country than heroin. It's like easy. It's, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering this exactly properly, but, um, no, I think you're hitting on a few things there. And like I've heard other people say who are much more qualified to talk about it than I am that unlike say the seventies, the eighties, or maybe even the nineties, like heroin's almost like a heroin itself is kind of almost a dead thing now. It is. It's very, very hard to find heroin on the streets. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if there's any in Peterborough. Yeah, I, I've I've heard people say that before too. So, and I'm just curious, just with fentanyl itself. So obviously, yeah, it's it's much more uh, deadlier and much more impactful than even heroin was. Um, what do you feel are the uh, like major like uh, main misconceptions uh, the general public has about fentanyl? Because I don't know if a lot of people know, and you would know more about this, obviously having a master's in nursing, but uh, it's used in some cases in geriatric care, is it not? So fentanyl is, is a safe medication that is used in healthcare. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That isn't what we're seeing on the streets that mm-hmm. um, the, the medication is regulated by the government. We know what's in it. We know the every time that um, a physician or a nurse has um, that medication of fentanyl, they know what they're giving to their client. They know what the, what that person, they know what the effect is going to be and they can dose according to tolerance. Um, but with fentanyl that's on the streets, you don't know what's in it and you don't know what the quality of that is because there's, it's not just purely fentanyl. It's there's other, other um, products in it to like buff and stuff like that to uh, make it a bigger quantity. And then they're, they're also adding, uh, benzos to it. So, um, benzodiazepines, um, but not the same benzodiazepines that would be prescribed. These are, these are made by, um, chemists in their, in the basement of some building and, um, they're novel benzodiazepines. So they aren't, they aren't what we're using. And so they are, um, they're harder to detect. They're, and, and again, they're, they're going for, it's cheaper and it's, and it's giving an effect that, um, that now that I, 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 I'm not an expert on this at all. Um, but, um, yeah, the benzodiazepines are making it so that, um, then when t- someone does have a drug poisoning, it's much more complicated because, um, using naloxone does not reverse, um, the effects of the benzos. 
So while, so if somebody goes down and are poisoned by their supply, um, naloxone can be used to reverse the effects of the opioid, but not the benzo. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I've heard that before as well. Um, and just, um, with things you've done, like with, uh, safer supply and, um, just, I guess, uh, like harm reduction in general, um, sadly, and I'm not advocating for any of this or anything like that. I, I really find it actually kind of crazy. Some people are still sort of this thinking, but um, what do you feel like some misconceptions maybe you've come across in the future? Like I just, or in the past, I mean, just like uh, two examples I can think of is like there not long ago is this like thing like, uh, um, I know in the U.S. anyway, there are a few places where the police would not touch fentanyl if, if, there's, if they thought it was exposed to their skin, it was going to kill them. And then you hear lately this thing about Halloween candy and things like that. So, I, I you know, it just goes with our, you know, one of the major misfortunes of society is our social inter- social networking, and that takes people in crazy places. But I don't know. Do you find that like, any of that has affected any of your work directly, any of these like kind of general public interpretations that have kind of just like had just come just had these prejudices or taken you off course of what you're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. And that's all fear mongering stuff yeah. and um and misconceptions. It's not true. You 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 aren't going to to uh, go down if you touch fentanyl. Um yeah. we know that that's not true. Um and the the something in your candy at Halloween has been a fear that has been uh going around forever. There when I was a kid it was there were razor blades in your chocolate. Yep. Like yep. there's there's something, right? They yep. that um, making us afraid of what could be in that product. Um, so I think that it's a continuation of that. And, um, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't know how else to respond to that. Yeah. Other yeah. Than, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll turn it a bit more personally. You'll probably find this at least a bit more, uh, like, um, easy to respond to. So you were once for my readings, you kind of were in pediatric oncology. And you made the shift more to community um, nursing and sort of, is there anything that uh, brought that on? Like, is it uh, personal and professional reasons or one or the other, or just anything you can say about that? Yeah. So I, I went into nursing later in life. I was in my mid thirties when I started at nursing school um, or nursing school, I guess in university to um, do a bachelor of science in nursing, but it there's, a history that comes that brought me to that point of doing that. So I, um, when I was a youth, I spent a good chunk of time, um, homeless and, um, using substances. And, um, it was a combination of things that, that, that led to me getting out of that situation. So, um, it was mostly connections with the community and, um, people going out of their way to help me out. And, um, I, it, I didn't go to treatment. I didn't do, um, I, I tried, I tried going to treatment. I tried doing all these abstinence based, um, models to, um, to leave that, that lifestyle, uh, behind me. Um, but for numerous reasons, I would get kicked out or it didn't work out. I just couldn't, the rules were ridiculous. I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't 
identify with the 12 step programs. So they just didn't work for me. Um, and I was staying at a st- second stage shelter and decided that I had, I had dropped out of school. Um, so I didn't have my high school and I decided for, I don't remember how I got to this decision, but I decided to, to take a chance and go back to school. So as a, in my early twenties, I went back to high school at the adult high school and I just kind of put blinders on and, and focused on school and it worked for me. Um, I was able to, um, to, I practiced, I, I practiced abstinence at certain times, harm reduction at other times. Um, but I did, um, I was able to, um, eventually get housing and, um, and the more problematic substance use that I had been doing, um, with, um, I kind of left that, left that in the past, but it was never in my past. And this was in the late nineties, early two thousands. And, um, there wasn't a role for people with lived experience at that time. And so I had to pretend that that wasn't a part of my past. So I had this five-year chunk where I didn't have any work experience. I didn't have school happening. I didn't have anything happening. So it was very hard to find a job. Um, so I had a resume that was maybe pushing the truth a little bit to try to get positions. And eventually somebody took a chance on me and said, ask me what my experience was. And then followed by saying, it doesn't matter. You're going to get the job anyways. So that, that's how I got my first job after that. And, and, um, and it really, it takes people like that to just give you a chance give you that opportunity um, to try, because if there's no opportunity, you're not, you're not going to get anywhere. So I worked in, in jobs that were fairly low paying and, um, I had a high school degree, but I, I went in, on to university to do a bachelor of arts, but it didn't really pan out for me. Um, the cost of living was too high. I didn't have enough support to help me get through it. So I ended up, um, not completing my bachelor of arts. Um, in because of the uh, because of financial reasons um and then when i a, a series of events happened and i ended up in um it was february and i decided that i needed something to focus on i i didn't have a job i didn't have anything and um i was actually staying with family at the time because i couldn't afford to my own place and i decided to try my luck at school again so I registered for the only program that was available in February, which was the personal support worker program, PSW or, or like clinic aid kind of role. Um, so I did that eight month program. And while I was in it, there were nurses who, um, who asked me why I was doing that and why I wasn't in the nursing program. And so with a lot of encouragement, I never wanted to be a nurse. I didn't it was never an option for me. I didn't ever consider being a nurse. When I was young, nursing was college level education and I was university bound in, in the, at that time. And so it was never an option that was ever presented to me as something to, to pursue. But I was now in this position where I, I liked the work as a PSW. Um, but I, also, um, I was challenging. It was challenging to work in those roles. 
Um, it's a lot of work. It, I have mad respect for anybody doing those jobs and they aren't respected and treated like they oh. should be. And I struggle with being in that place, kind of like why I got kicked out of, of rehab um, for the same reasons. I have a hard time um, with authority sometimes. Um, and so I decided to go into the nursing program. So I went directly that September right into nursing and worked as a PSW during the time that I was in school. And four years later, I had my degree and I was an RN. And I, but the whole time I was in school, I knew I wanted to do one of two things. I either wanted to work with pediatrics um, based on my experiences as a youth and dealing with um, the children's hospital um, and uh, for illnesses that were going on with me. Um, and my other was to work with people who are unhoused or people who use drugs. Um, so I, when I first got out of school, I did both. I worked part-time doing pediatrics, mostly in oncology at the end, and and part-time working in the community um, with people who are unhoused. And I I needed to make a choice between the two. Doing doing both wasn't really working. Um, and I opted to work in the community um for uh, numerous reasons and um and i and i don't regret it for one second i really um i like i i really loved working in the community and um it was it, and um yeah so yeah. that's kind of how i how i ended up okay well that's a great tale of resilience there you have you must certainly you have a inner toughness, a backbone that not everyone has. So that's quite, that's quite impressive. Um, now more than just really liked it or loved it, you I read somewhere, you said you found a sense of meaning working both with the homeless and um, drug users. I don't really know if there's anyone who could ever say that. I'll say that personally. I've never really had any that sense. I found a sense of meaning working in any jobs I've had. So um, I don't know if there's like, I think you've explained a lot of it later um, in your last question with your your story there. But uh, is there anything you can add to that of like just what it um, you're trying to give, but it's also giving something to you sort of thing? Yeah, I I definitely get a lot out of the, the work. I um, I just really wanted to I, I sorry when I when I left the streets, I kind of pretended that didn't happen. I didn't talk about it. I didn't refer to it. I didn't use it. And even as a nurse in my early years of of, of working with um, people who are unhoused and people who use drugs, I wasn't upfront. I wasn't open or honest about my own lived experience. And I worked alongside people who were in roles because of their lived experience. So they were they were open about it. They were, they were, um, and they were, uh, they had more trust and respect from the people than, than I could as a nurse necessarily. So I then, I knew that I would, it was a disservice to, um, to everybody involved for me to rely on people being open about their lived experience when I wasn't. And it just didn't sit well with me. Um, but I had to get to a place where I was okay with being open about it. And, um, and it took a while, but 
now I, now I, I do. And in a job interview, I, if something comes up about it, I am open about it. And, um, I, and I have seen the value of that. Um, people, um, it's, People, if you can say that you've had that same experience, then people know you get it, right? And um, I remember one time I was talking to somebody and they were telling me a story and then they said, well, have you ever been in a shelter? I'm like, yeah. And, the, and they continued on with their story. But they were, they were, if I didn't have that experience, then I don't know that they would have continued with the, with what they were telling me. So um yeah, no, I, well, I feel that's, you're bringing up an important point of like, um, um, how people who've actually lived through these, these experiences of, um, having, uh, problems, addiction and being homeless, um, it's almost, I don't know if I don't want to say a necessity, but it really, you have like such a rich understanding that people who don't just, even if they, are really have been like uh, exposed to a lot of it and are trying to have a sense of understanding, like perhaps myself, I still feel there's this kind of wall that I just can't quite, I, tr- I may try to empathize, but I can't quite totally uh, conceive of all the challenges or what it involves that perhaps someone like you can. And I've, I've heard that come from other people before. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, but I don't pretend that I have all of the experiences. So like I, I do have lived experience, but my lived experience is pretty old and um, I don't have lived experience of the drug poisoning crisis. I don't have lived experience that people are having right now, which is why it is so important that I, and, and what I've done in my time at, in Peterborough is reach out to people with living experience, people who are, who are living the realities of what is happening now, because it's a very, very different world than what, than the, the world was when I was mm-hmm. using drugs. And um, so when I first started at um, the 360 degree nurse practitioner led clinic on this safer supply project, I asked for there to be a, a, an advisory committee of people with lived and living experience. There was already an advisory committee of of um, professionals, so service and ordering providers, but there wasn't one for 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 people with lived experience. Um, and the organization was open to creating that, and it was great. And then I was doing research, and um, I hired somebody with lived experience from Peterborough because I also don't know the Peterborough culture. I mm-hmm. I didn't grow up there. I wasn't from there, so I needed to reach out to the community. And get their their input, and that goes a long way in in developing trust with the community. Yeah, no, and I think that's an important point, and it's I think something you brought up before. So perhaps it's what you just said, but from your time at three sixty degree, um, I guess just is there something you're really most proud of that you were able to accomplish when you were there? You or the team, I mean. But yeah. Yeah. So. I started on this project and I was the only employee. It was a safer supply project that was focused on research. So I was hired as that researcher slash coordinator. The first year was to do research, looking at the enablers and barriers to opioid agonist therapy. So like methadone and suboxone and the enablers and barriers to safer supply. So that was 
the project. And there was a potential to maybe do a 10-person pilot program the following year. So it would have been this the summer that just passed. And But how we were going to do that, I'm really not sure um, because I was the only employee and there was no money to hire anybody. So it was really relying on people people to prescribe first of all and um and and then the rest of the support that people need I don't I don't know how it could have happened so uh it's funded the project is funded by Health Canada's substance use and addictions program mm-hmm. and I started in April 2021 and in June of that year there was a call out for amendments to projects. So anybody who had a project could request additional funding um, to expand the project in some way. So some programs, they like asked for extra money to have a social work, another social worker or different, different things to change their programs. And this is rare that, that projects get this opportunity to ask for additional funding. So, I went to leadership and I asked if I could create a program, a safer supply program that would serve 50 people, for instance. And it took a lot of talking and, um, and some time, but leadership eventually said, sure, let's go for it. Uh, Unfortunately, they told me that we could go for it when it was like four days away from the deadline. So (laughs) quickly I wrote a proposal and the executive director helped me with the budgeting part of it. And we created this uh, safer supply program and sent it in, hoping for the best. And um, we were supposed to hear in August and then it got extended. And then there was a, an election that year. So um, everything, all the money was frozen. So we couldn't do anything and there was no response. And then in December, I believe is 22nd of December, we received um, confirmation that the proposal was accepted and it turned a approximately $200,000 project into a million dollar project. So that meant a team could be hired and a, and a program could, what could actually be built. Um, So that was definitely a highlight of, of the, of my time in Peterborough. Um, I, and the reason that I, that I went for it was that that year, 44 people had died from a drug poisoning in Peterborough and a 10 person pilot program just didn't make sense. It didn't make sense. And, and I didn't, I couldn't conceive of how we could actually do it because it's a lot more than just prescribing medication. Safer supply is relational. It's a, um, and it's, it's supposed to be a, a low barrier harm reduction based program that offers wraparound services, so primary care, nursing care, um, social services, case management, all of those things, because there's, as you know, way more going on in someone's life than just their use of fentanyl that needs that they need support with. Um, mm. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a surprising and really, uh, really great addition to the project to be able to create an actual program. Right. And you'll probably agree with me on this. I think one of the maybe strengths in how the program has worked in Peterborough, safe, safer supply and perhaps related to CTS as well is like it's a multi organizational approach. It's not just, uh, it's not just one organization taking all the burden like 360. It's, it's, it's you at 360, Parn, 
forecast, MSORT, those sort of things. So yeah, they aren't they aren't connected directly with the program, but we definitely rely on our partners, um, mm-hmm. especially with uh, with connecting with people. If it's if they don't have a phone and we have no way of finding them, then uh, people who are already out there on the ground, instead of replicating that service, we just reach out to them. So, for example, MSORT. Um, they have a vehicle they can they're out there looking for people and we share we share clients we're 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 trying to help the same people so um working together as as a team has definitely been a huge advantage yeah well at least you'd say that it's like at least an open communication system you have because I, I feel sometimes with our um sometimes our shelters there's a bit of a silo there but uh so, but uh okay yes but anyway i'll uh, but that's that's good that's yes that's good to hear now just uh, i guess in a more generalized way so you've had experiences in ottawa and toronto plus out in victoria now um is there any way of like um sort of comparing you know, understanding that Peterborough is a lot smaller, of course, but it, more than just that, is there any way you sort of compare that of uh, Peterborough's, what you've seen in Peterborough compared to like other places you've been in? Um, just anything, maybe ideas that you think would maybe be prevalent in Peterborough or sort of things along those lines anyway, sort of a comparison sort of. Yeah. I, the, the drug poisoning crisis is it's, it doesn't discriminate. It's everywhere and everyone is affected. And Peterborough is smaller, um, definitely. But when I did, um, when I did research in Peterborough, looking at enablers and barriers and asking people what they want to see and what they need, it's not that different from my master's research when I spoke to people in a larger community, um, about and about what was going on in their lives. So I don't, um, yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from, from the bigger communities and, um, and then we can adapt it to suit, to suit Peterborough. Um, but if we ignore what's happening in the other communities, then it's a, it's, it's like they have had funding longer. They have more funding. They have more resources and, um, so being able to adapt that to our community, I think is really important and lessons learned, right? They've, they've mm-hmm. maybe gone through the, the, the process before us so we can learn what to avoid and what to try to do differently. Now I have to say like the safer supply, um, the program is, um, it's, it's going really well and we're, and we're really proud of it. I have, because I'm doing a PhD, I've stepped back from the front like from yeah. actually managing the actual program and I'm just doing the research and evaluation of the program and working closely with um with the current program manager but
think you um, definitely would call yourself someone who really like advocates and fights for social justice. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, so is there something you sort of kind of when you go in various projects, such as what you did in Peterborough, is there some sort of like uh, end goal or I should pluralize that end goals you have in mind? You probably have already said a few of them. Um, because sometimes there's another misconception I feel is out there is that like, it's all about making everyone clean kind of thing. And I, that's yeah. not really achievable. I would, to someone who's been in education, I would not call that a smart goal because that's not, no, not achievable. No. Yeah. no, exactly. You're right. And people <laughs> use substances. We always have, and we always will we seek pleasure. We, mm-hmm. we use drugs. We, we, whatever that drug might be. And that's not going to change. And prohibition is, has been the, is the root of the problems. And, um, and so we, we need to accept that and we seek euphoria. And that's not necessarily even in safer supply programs. Um, sometimes that's, that's ignored that people do, um, and I shouldn't say in safer supply programs, I should say like in, in general, it's forgotten that that is, that is part of it. And that is why we need to be advocating for like better medications within, within safer supply, uh, programs, because right now the only medication that's available, the only short acting medication available to prescribe is hydromorphone or Dilaudid tablets. And we need, we need to be pushing for what people actually want and what people actually need um, to be successful on the program. People are using fentanyl and then we're giving them something different. Um, if we had access to diacetylmorphine, which is pharmaceutical grade heroin, or if we had access to fentanyl, we could actually match what what they're using, that uh, but giving them a safe option. And um, and there's a lot of people that aren't interested in the safer supply program for that reason because hydromorphone just doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. So um, there is advocacy happening right now to to try to change the drug formulary so that we can access it. And even with, with the tablets, hydromorphone tablets, they're not meant for injection. And in no other situation would we, would we have somebody use a tablet for injection? So there needs to be access to in, the injectable formulations of that medication of Dilaudid or hydromorphone. So there, there's a lot of work still to be done is my point. And, um, and there's also, this this model is it's a medical model and it's the it's an a, a great first step into into helping with this drug poisoning crisis but we need alternatives we need other models and um and there's research happening t- um to look into those other what other models we need and we need to be talking to people who use drugs to ask them what they need to see what we need to provide for them. And a lot of those models require decriminalization, legalization, and regulation, of course, um, which I would hope is down the line for us, but um, but it's hard to know right now where where things are going to head. Yeah, I, I so I see that that's definitely something you're really trying to fight for. And yeah, unfortunately, we have a system of government, like all three, that uh, 
don't really often want to touch it and just don't really seem to work together and default when coming up with something. But hopefully, yes, that's going to be down the line. Now, just something you brought up earlier in our conversation, how you were saying it, like it didn't really quite work for you, uh, like AA's traditional 12-step approach. And I know there's many exceptions of people it has worked for, but would you say overall, at least for what we're facing today, that traditional system is either A, ineffective, or do you wish there was kind of more alternatives for how drug treatment is done? Because that's still a primary approach that a lot of people still are, t- that a lot of Absolutely. previous centers are using. And mm-hmm. for some people, it works really, really well. And I'm not advocating mm-hmm. at all that that needs to go away. I think that the treatment, the treatment that exists needs to remain. We need opioid agonist therapy. We need inpatient residential treatment centers for the people who want it and who, and, and it works really well for some people, but we need alternatives and we need harm reduction to be, um, a, more ingrained in those. So there, the abstinence based model does not work for everybody and and I would argue that it's uh, that some of these programs are are harmful for people to be a part of, and it leads to more stigma, more shame, and when when you aren't successful in their eyes, um, people get kicked out of treatment for for using, and um, and then they're left to be on the streets and and back in the same position, and um, so having some 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 different the rules around these programs to be a little bit less harsh for people and 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 then completely different options so like along the lines of safer supply mm. the safer yeah. supply the the goal isn't abstinence it's mm-hmm. not um treatment in the same way it is an alternative to um to the options that are that are available and the goal is whatever you you want it to be so your goal may be that you want to reconnect with your family then that's what we help you to achieve your goal may be that you want to get housing because we can't ignore housing housing is like first and foremost the the biggest thing that people talk about um we need to help people to to try to get that but i know you've talked to other people about the housing crisis mm-hmm. and and just finding people housing isn't it's not easy at no. all no that's a that. whole other crisis yes but similar it's also a canada-wide issue yes i'm sure exactly. like bc i mean that's uh that's quite it's quite uh monumental there um now just a yeah, simple question what is it you are studying or what is part of your um main tasks you're doing right now at university of victoria so my my research in uh, at Queens, I did my master's at Queens University mm-hmm. in Kingston, and I used socio narratology as my methodology, which is is a narrative. So asking people their stories, um, and I focused on um, people who were uh, who had been stabilized on a safer supply program, and so I now I'm doing my PhD, and it's and I. Uh, one thing that happened in my master's that I wasn't expecting was that who um, were part of my study for my master's all self-identified as being Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. So my project shifted 
partway through when, uh, because I didn't set out to, um, to recruit Indigenous people specifically, but that's, that's how it worked out. Um, and Indigenous people are disproportionately affected by the drug poisoning crisis. Um, so it, I shouldn't have been surprised, but, um, so my research now at, uh, I haven't started my research. I'm in my first year of PhD. So I'm just, um, kind of doing coursework and, um, but I'm working with, um, Dr. Bernie Pauly, who is researching safer supply in BC. So, um, so I'm definitely, so I'm continuing my studies with, um, with looking at safer supply programs. But I'm really focused on wanting to talk to people who use drugs and ask them what they want safer supply to look like. This mm-hmm. medical model, like I said, when it works, it works really, really well for people, but it doesn't work for everyone. And it's not even needed for everyone. We, it has to be a medical model because we need to use, there needs to be a prescription because, because, uh, drugs are criminalized. So mm-hmm. this is really the only option we have right now. But if if decriminal and decriminalization is going to be a thing in um, in BC in the new year, yeah. so what can we do with that? What model do people who use drugs want to see? What do they what do they need? And so uh, there's research now happening looking at that, and especially indigenous led, um, and and we yes. Yeah, so I'm. I'm hoping that that is the direction that my research goes in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think you bring up a good point knowing from like, I have no scientific proof or I haven't done enough uh, like analysis to show this is a hundred percent correct, but I definitely, let's just put it this way. When I've, uh, I, I've seen uh, various people um, in various shelters and I used to have one job that kind of, um, involved um, providing Nalex for people who had overdosed. Um, I was kind of just amazed because I didn't, I don't, I didn't grow up in Peterborough either like you did. Um, even though I was aware there's three um, reserves around here, but quite a high proportion of amount of people you see are from, yeah, our crown land. So, and I find that, I don't, I find that quite troubling actually, but yeah. So. Yeah. The, in, in, in BC, the statistic, uh, I don't know it off by heart, but it's around like 19%, I think it's 18.9% of drug poisonings were in Indigenous peoples, and Indigenous people make up 3.3% of the population. So just so disproportionately affected by this crisis. And, and the models that we're building are based out of the medical system that didn't, that is not low barrier to mm-hmm. indigenous peoples and 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 that causes great harm for people so we need to be seeking different models and within those models making sure that um the indigenous voice is heard and that um yeah it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a uh, healthcare is is a bit of a mess and uh yeah, and yeah. definitely there's barrier, even the safer supply program in Peterborough, like as much as we want it to be harm reduction and low barrier for people, it's, it, there are still barriers and big barriers that, um, that are troubling and ethical dilemmas all the time. Like we are helping a very small proportion of people who need, who want this program. Like there's a wait list for the program that we had to shut because 
we, we can't, we just don't have capacity to help more people. And that's problematic. So we're just, these programs are just skimming the surface of the pro of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and is some of the, is one barrier, I'm sure it's one of many, but is one <clears throat> kind of like it, um, of it, uh, like you, like it's something like CTS, like the drugs cannot be provided. You can't inhale the drugs. So is that, yeah. is that one barrier right there? Like, you, you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the, what we're providing, as you know, the, mm-hmm. and from the research that I did went um, last year, looking at the enablers and barriers um, in the demographics, I believe out of 20 people, sorry, almost 30 people, Mm-hmm. Um, 14 people said they smoked their fentanyl and seven people said they inject their fentanyl. So there's a, a big difference in, in how people are consuming their drugs now. And, um, and we aren't, we aren't providing an option that is smokable. So, um, so that's, there's, yeah, if people, yeah. if people want to smoke their, their drugs, then we can't really, we can't provide them with something that they can smoke. So that's a problem. Yeah. And then right now at Peterborough, we have like um, one person who's putting like providing it outdoors, like near our overflow shelter. But um, sadly, I can see that being kind of like a, a moral dilemma for uh, our, our municipal government, and our police. Like uh, there's some of them that just want to clear them out and that sort of thing. But even though they're providing like, the same service outdoors but yeah yeah well i think that that service that you're referring to the tweak easy yes yes that's what i'm talking about yeah they're providing an incredible service to the community and um yeah and it needs to be recognized as that and Mm. yeah so yeah i think we're we're seeing it's in our face right now right Mm -hmm. the the problem is it's you can't deny that there is a drug poisoning crisis and a housing crisis it's right there and um and i think that maybe at, it was a little more hidden when there was when the housing crisis wasn't wasn't a thing you know there was i don't i don't know and is some of that like back then it's and even up till fairly recently a lot of it was still a kind of an agricultural production but now it's kind of a synthetic thing in a lab does that have a relation to toxicity you feel yeah well i i know in the 90s when when <clears throat> i was unhoused like my friends weren't dying all around me and <clears throat> that that wasn't my experience that that is new that is the last like since the the drug poisoning crisis developed like it just wasn't a thing. Yes, people died. There were there were there have always been deaths due to overdoses, but not like we're seeing today. Like this is a crisis beyond what we've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and just one <clears throat> one drug that I've heard is increasing a lot, and I don't know if you've seen any of it in your studies or not. Is ketamine, and I don't know. I just if and if. I don't know if you've have been exposed to that or can say anything about that or and is any sort of toxicity related to that as well? 
So I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do right. know people when um, there was a study just recently um, put out um, looking at concept mapping and they um, one of and the question was, what do you want safer supply to look look like? And they were asking people who use drugs um, to answer this question. And one of the things was that they want they want the right medication, the right drug and at the right dose. And one of the drugs that they were asking for was ketamine. So as um, being part of a safe supply. So I think, again, you don't know what you're getting on the streets and you don't know if it's contaminated with fentanyl when you get it. Um, and so, so yes, it, it exists as a, as a drug that people are seeking. Um, right. And no, no drug right. is safe right now. Stimulants aren't safe. Like um, there are so many, so many things contaminating all of the drug supply. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you would say that's a bit about our nutritional supplement industry as well. But um, anyway, um, I, I, I'm interpreting from you that you sort of also, you have a bit of a, like a Canada wide kind of focus on some of these issues now, just like different places you've been in your studies do you feel that like the federal government SUAP plan that you're referring to earlier substance use and addiction program has been like, is it, is at least been a step in the pro, uh, right direction or a progress for how our government's reacting to these things? It's yeah. The, the safer supply programs are really <sighs> the only option. Like mm-hmm. people who use drugs have been asking for a safe supply um, for before the these safer supply programs popped up and um the medical model is not exactly what what they were asking for but within a world where criminalization of people who use drugs and uh, exists it's really the the only option that is available to be able to to do on a larger scale um and Health Canada, SUAP, they only provide up to a maximum of five years of funding because they fund projects. They don't fund actual programs. It's not mm-hmm. long term. It's very short term. And even within those five years, you get funded for like for our funding um, in Peterborough for Safer Supply ends at the end of March of 2023. And right now there is an option like we haven't been, we haven't existed for five years. So there is room for us to have more time, but we still right now, and it's the middle of October and we don't know what's happening with our funding. So there, and we aren't the only program in this position. So they haven't put out a call yet for us to apply for an extension. So that puts us in a really, horrible ethical dilemma again in what do we do? Do we onboard more people on the program? But we don't know what the sustainability of the program. We don't know if our funding is going to be renewed. Um, So we don't want to bring people on if we can't, if we can't continue to, to, to provide for them, um, provide this medication for them and supports for them. Um, So it's, it's really challenging. And, but, really and truly the province is supposed to be funding programs for healthcare. That's the way the structure works. Mm-hmm. No, it's constitutionally but, how it's structured. Yes. Yeah, so. But the provinces aren't stepping up and creating 
programs. So it's great that Health Canada offered these programs, but it's just, it's not sustainable funding. And that's a really big problem. It's a problem for people who use drugs. And it's also a problem for people working in the programs um, for sustainable, for their own sustainability. Okay. Well, I, I promise I do not want to end on any dire note, but I will say this, like, uh, yes, sadly, it sounds like what you're saying is really the safer supplies kind of at the mercy of politics and without, you know, you know, we, who knows, you know, what Ottawa's direction, Ottawa's next direction will be. And like, even what you saw in Peterborough with uh, CTS was like, you know, okay, well, the federal government wants it, but then it requires, you know, the provinces mandate and they took forever and this sort of thing and um, other issues as well. It's just, uh, it's just, it's real. What am I correct in saying often these things are one big bureaucratic headache just to even get going. And at the same time, while people are dying, that, that times must be frustrating for you. Yeah. Exactly. It, it is incredibly frustrating. And, um, and there are, like it's, there are a lot of successes and there's a lot to be, to be grateful for in, in creating this program and providing these services. Like people are, who are on safer supply, they're, they do well and there are successes and um, we just need more. We need, we need to keep pushing for, for more support and, and, and sustainable support. Right. Okay. Well, I just, uh, just to end it here, like, what do you uh, feel like is good? What do you have in mind to sort of your next step after your, at your time of Victoria, which I know you just got there. So that's still a while (laughs) coming, but like, do you have something in mind coming after that or you just the world is open or i i as i said before i i nursing was kind of something i landed in and Mm -hmm. i used it for my as a way to be able to um work with people who are unhoused and people who use drugs and um but it was really close to home doing that work so i I took some steps backwards and decided to look more into like research and, um, and well, I, I tried my hand at program management and development. And um, so where I'm headed, I, I definitely want to continue this work um, just in different ways. So um, at this time, I'm kind of, research is the angle that I'm taking and um, but where that'll land, I I'm not really sure, but I definitely am still, I still have my hand in the Peterborough, um, the Peterborough project. It's really, um, it's really close to like, it really, it's it's a meaningful project to me and, Mm. um, and I want to see it do really well. Hey!
prepared to be on the side of the coin that's loved for its rarity. Every season needs a Brutus. Every Jesus needs a Judas. Every chain needs a yay. Every Tom needs a Jerry. Every Jerry needs a Newman.